Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Before we get to this week's podcast, we want to take a brief moment to talk a little bit about giving. June 30th marks the end of our fiscal year. It's a time for us to pause, reflect in gratitude, and celebrate what your generosity has accomplished over the past year as we look forward in hopeful anticipation to the year ahead. Thank you for all you've given in your time, talent, and finances to bring about the healing work that God has entrusted to us. Now, in the spirit of our deeply held values of authenticity and transparency, we want to share with you all that we are behind our expected giving for the year. Know that all we do in and through Denver Community Church is only made possible by the financial support of those who call DCC home. To all those who have given faithfully over the past weeks, months, and years, thank you for entrusting us and partnering with us in this vital work. And if you call DCC home but have not yet considered giving financially, we ask that you would prayerfully discern joining us in supporting the healing work to which we are called. You can learn more about how we steward our finances by emailing us at info at denverchurch.org. And if you'd like to begin giving right now, you can start the process by texting Denver Church to 77977. Again, thank you for all that you give. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you all this morning. Um, happy June. Uh, it's here. If we've not met before, um, I see some unfamiliar faces, so I wanted to introduce myself. My name is Maggie Knight, and I am the children's pastor here at Denver Community Church. So I lead DCC Kids, uh, which is the ministry that Amanda was talking about prior. Thank you, Amanda, for queuing that up for us. And I just wanted to get acquainted with you all first. Um, I've been on staff here at DCC for six years this fall and have been in the pastoral version of my role for four of those years. Um, I'm married to Brett, and I have three boys. Uh, That's Graham, seven, Clark is five, and Rudy is two. Uh, So that just means that I'm super busy and rarely sane. And uh, don't be fooled. I feel like there were um, ample bribes, threats, and like whisper screaming that moms are really good at to make that happen. So... Don't be fooled. Um, I love what I get to do with children's ministry here at DCC because so many of us have had hard experiences at church when we were young, or maybe some of us are struggling now to unlearn things that we heard at church when we were kids. It's such a formative time, um, that kindergarten through fifth grade time, those zero to five-year-olds, those little kiddos. My vision has always been for this ministry is to cultivate and create a space where kids feel freedom to be exactly who God created them to be, a place where they belong, a place where they can be super curious, they can wonder about things out loud, um, and ask tons of questions. 
as kids do. We try to capture all that's happening with a child's development and what makes them special and create a ministry that is exactly that. It's for kids suited for who they are and how they learn. We also spend a lot of our time creating a ministry that welcomes all family types and structures. It's been so beautiful to be a part of that for the last six years. And in some ways, I feel like we are just getting started. Um, I have some really beautiful visions and dreams for um, how we're going to grow and what comes next for us. So if any of that sounds interesting to you at all, um, find me or anyone wearing a DCC Kids shirt today. Uh, I love to talk. And uh, this is one of my very favorite topics. So please don't be shy. Uh, Okay, so with that out of the way, I hope all that kid talk didn't scare anyone away. I swear I'm not going to break out the felt storyboards about about Noah's Ark. You guys remember these? That's scheduled for August. I'm joking. (laughs) But do you remember those? That would be a real choice if I, like, had an easel and brought it up. Um, Or what if I came up and I'm wearing, like, the robes and sandals? I feel like all Sunday school teachers growing up had those. Um, like it's giving Bible character. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't have one of those yet. Um, Catch me next time. We'll see. Uh, However, I do have an iconic Jesus miracle to talk with you all about today. So if you have not been following along with us on Sunday mornings recently, we are going through a season of teaching focused on the gospel of Luke. Luke is the third of the four Gospels, and much of Luke is focused on Jesus' ministry and teaching in Galilee, his dealings both in word and deed with the common person, regular folks, just like me and you, like stars, they're just like us. Um, So let's read today's passage together before we jump in. So Luke 5, 1 through 11 says this. One day, Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee. The people crowded around him and listened to the word of God. Jesus saw two boats at the edge of the water. They had been left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into the boat that belonged to Simon. Jesus asked him to go out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down in the boat and taught the people. When he finished speaking, he turned to Simon. Jesus said, go out into deep water. Let down the nets so that you can catch some fish. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught a large number of fish. There were so many that their nets began to break. So they motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Go away from me, Lord, he said. I am a sinful man. He and everyone with him were amazed at the number of fish they had caught. So were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who worked with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. For now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and followed him. All right, so just a hot take right off the bat, we have Jesus committing grand theft watercraft, um, or at the very least, not following proper boat etiquette. He just like hops into Simon Peter's boat and he's like, drive. Um, I've seen below deck a few too many times and I know that is not how you are supposed to do it. 
I'm pretty sure this is part of the plot of that show, Inventing Anna. Um, but by the way, Simon is a fisherman by trade. This is what he does. And spoiler alert, he becomes one of Jesus's closest and first disciples. You'll hear Simon referred to also as Simon Peter, or as I like to say, he's like the artist formerly known as Simon. Uh, And later, Jesus will rename him Peter as a part of his transformation to becoming one of his disciples. Um, I personally like Simon Peter best because I think it sounds super Southern, like Simon Peter. Um, Like, I feel like you could embroider that on a tote bag and no one would blink an eye. In Jesus' defense, scholars believe that the reason that he went aboard the boat to begin with um, wasn't because it made for a cool picture, and it wasn't because he wanted to separate himself from the people that he was teaching, but because the crowds were pressing in on him, and there wasn't really anywhere else to go. The water is behind him, the crowds are in front of him, and he didn't bring his water wings, so onto the boat Jesus goes. And as we mentioned earlier, this whole gospel is about how Jesus meets regular folks in their worlds. He moves towards Simon and James and John. He didn't ask them to join him on land and in his world. And he could have easily done just that. He met them in theirs. There's some significance there that is not lost on me. Jesus is ready to meet us in our environment. But Jesus had also met Simon before. This is not the first time that they've interacted. Jesus had done a miracle in Simon's presence before this even happens. Jesus had healed Simon's mother-in-law just a chapter before this in the Gospel of Luke. This may explain why Simon is like super cool with Jesus just jumping on his boat to teach. Um, He's not just like some random guy with a following like the ones we see on Netflix, if you know what I mean. Um, They're already acquainted They've met, and Jesus has already, like, flexed in his presence a little bit. So he's like, all right, you can come. And what follows is a miracle that is only written about in the Gospel of Luke. This is the only recounting we have of this miracle. Jesus immediately asks Simon to throw the nets in again, which, I mean, honestly, I am surprised that Simon is not more annoyed. I personally know that I would be He's a fisherman. This is his area of expertise. This is his bread and butter. He knows it is not the best time to be fishing. He knows they have not been successful thus far. And I'm sure he's been tired. It's a whole night of fishing already. And like, I think in the back of his mind, he's like, I'm going to have to wash my nets again. And likely they're not going to have anything to show for it when they return kind of reminds me of um, when IT asks you to reboot your computer when you're having an issue, and you're like, yep, I have already tried that a few times. But you do it anyways, like they're standing right there, you don't want to be rude, Um, you're just going to do what they're asking you to do. I picture Simon kind of like rolling his eyes a bit, he's like, "Uh, I'll do it, just don't want to be rude, you asked me to do it, so I'm going to do it. And just like the IT example, it works right away. We've all felt that. You're like, I swear, right before you walked in, it was not work. I did it a billion times. I don't know. Um, and the person's like, mm-hmm, yeah, sir. Uh, this is the exact feeling that Simon has here. That's how he's feeling. 
but it's on a much greater magnitude because he is awed. The nets are brought in, and wouldn't you know it, they have fish. Not just a few fish, not just the normal day's catch of fish, like an over-the-top amount of fish, an impossible amount of fish, like Jesus be extra type amount of fish. He went hard on the fish. It's an embarrassment of riches. And they know that this has been no accident. Because it likely could have ended up that way. Like imagine if they had caught their normal haul of fish, they could have chalked the earlier misfortune up to an accident, bad luck, it's just a fluke. Like maybe it was bad strategy on their part. They didn't find the right area. The abundance and the lavishness of what they find in their nets leaves them no room to question that this was in fact a miracle. Jesus was responsible, and they can make a correlation here that one thing led to the other. It's actually so many fish as we read that the boats almost sink. They are so hashtag blessed that they almost lose their boat which if you're following along at home would mean they lose their source of livelihood. Seems like kind of an important thing to hold on to, uh, but they won't need it. It's actually a setup for the end. Can you imagine how truly terrifying that must have been for all the fishermen aboard? I think because we've read these stories for centuries and the material is not necessarily fresh for us, it's easy to take the amazement and the awe out of the story entirely to strip it of emotion, and we're like, yep, I remember this one from Sunday school. It's a miracle, there's lots of fish, the end. If you place yourself in the context of this story, and like, let's say you use all that you've seen on Deadliest Catch as a starting place, like so, you remember these guys, um, you'd be floored. I'm picturing on that show uh, when they pull a pot, you see me using the lingo, um, and they get a final count, and if it's a big one, they flip out. They're like high-fiving each other. They're hollering because they know what it means. They've made their quota. Maybe they made their week. They would be amazed. And perhaps you might have the same response that Simon Peter has, which is to then feel shame. It's clear that Simon Peter wasn't expecting what happens here. He couldn't and wouldn't have had any way of knowing how this interaction would unfold. He wasn't expecting that Jesus would do something so impossibly big and good. When I first read this account, it reminded me of something that happened with my family a few years back. This was pre-COVID. My dad was turning 60, which is a pretty big birthday. And so we had started brainstorming, like, what's going to make him feel special? What's going to surprise him the most? what would be like over the top, but in a way that would make him see and feel that we knew how he would want to be loved and that we know that he in particular is special. Um, It might be important to share that I have two brothers. One of them lives here in town and the other one lives in Kansas City. So my my out of town brother was coming into town about a month before my dad's birthday for something completely unrelated. Um, And so we decide to concoct a plan. He's not going to see it coming because 
It's not his birthday yet. And we knew that he did not want a big party. He would want something like more intimate and small with the people that knew him and loved him most. He would want to have his family together. So we told him, what we told him was, we're doing pizza night at my house with like all the kids, the whole family. Um, But in reality, we had set up babysitters and we had made reservations at Steakhouse 10, which um, if you've not been, it's a very old school spot. Uh, It may or may not be run by the mafia. Don't tell them I told you that. So we take him there and he is totally surprised. I know he's not expecting it because he's dressed for pizza party and he's not dressed for steakhouse vibes, if you know what I mean. Um, And if you knew my dad, you would know that he like rarely even wears t-shirts. He's like strictly a polo and a button down kind of guy. And he was casual. So I knew like we definitely took him by surprise, but it didn't matter. We're together. We're there, long table. We're enjoying steak and potatoes and wine and some sort of Greek liquor that they bring out in between courses. Um, And we brought a cake, and we sing him happy birthday. Uh, There he is, blowing out his candles. Woo! Go, Dad. Um, We decide to end the evening going around the table and telling my dad all the ways that we love him, how much he means to us, all the best things that we see in him, which is simple enough. Like, that's easy. But if you've ever been the center of attention and the landing spot for so much love and an over-the-top amount of adoration, you know that that can sometimes feel hard to hear. So in between each person, my dad would tell everyone to stop. Just stop talking. Stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Stop lavishing compliments. He couldn't handle it. He was crying at this point, and I know how hard it was for him to just receive the goodness. In fact, at the end of the time, my dad went around the table and told each of us what he loved about us, which like that was not the assignment, but it was fun nevertheless. Similarly, I keep recalling this visual. Um, if you're my age or older, you'll know um, Publishers Clearinghouse. You guys remember? That's like the highest resolution they had back then. So they would deliver these checks to people's door. There's Betty Patchett getting her million dollars. Um, And somehow they always caught people in their slippers and like with their hair in rollers. I don't know why or how that always seemed to happen. Or I guess like the modern equivalent today would be like people receiving a check and prizes on the Ellen show. I feel like she does that a lot. Um, Oftentimes you see the unsuspecting recipient like drop to their knees. Or sometimes they like just book it backstage. Maybe they put their head in their hands, they hide their face, they shield themselves. There's something hardwired in our bodies to flee and hide when we're faced with something extravagantly good that blesses us in such a big way. I envision Simon Peter the same way after this miracle. It's too much. I don't deserve it. It is uncomfortable to be in the presence of over-the-top goodness and abundance. It's not easy for us to swallow. We don't think we're worthy of impossibly big and good things that God has for us. But keep in mind, so Jesus is choosing his first disciples here. Like the title of this passage in scripture is literally Jesus chooses his first disciples. This is the whole point. He's drafting the A-team here. 
And he has his pick of many, but he zeroes in on these fishermen of all people, which is likely why they feel so surprised and ill-equipped. Naturally, that reminds me of getting drafted for sports teams in school. Um, Even starting to talk about this, like, has my trauma response firing a little bit? Um, But if you know, you know, I'm not an athletic or coordinated person. I personally never got picked first, second, I don't think anything other than last when we were picking teams in school. So I am picturing how I would have felt with like my frizzy hair, my butterfly clips, my platform sandals. There's me, eighth grade. Um, So I'm picturing myself on the field at Crest Hill Middle School, this person right here, um, and the most athletic kid in school decides to draft me first on his team for the basketball unit in PE. Like, it boggles the mind. I don't know. Um, I would have been confused, embarrassed, and I likely would have assured him, like, this is not the right choice. Actually, I probably would have faked sick and gone to the nurse's office because that was definitely my move back then. I would have felt exactly the same way that Simon Peter feels here. I'm not worthy. Or as Simon says, I'm a sinner. Whenever I hear the word sinner, um, I think human, because we know scripture says in Romans 3.23, everyone has sinned. No one measures up to God's glory. You are God, and I am human. I don't feel worthy to be chosen. Sounds to me like standard fair imposter syndrome. Um, If you have not heard that term or experienced it before, although I think many of us have, That's just the term for feeling like a total fraud, like you're eventually going to be found out. The fear that you're going to be exposed for not being who people thought that you were. And I can relate. I can relate to Simon Peter in that feeling. You see, my journey to ministry here at DCC, to like this platform, to this like tiny microphone right here, uh, was less of a calling, like a formal calling like Simon's, and more of a series of fortunate accidents. Um, You see, my background is in marketing and advertising and retail management. Like, I went to business school. Um, And at the time, I had stepped away from all of that, all of those things, after I gave birth to my first son. I was super burnt out, and really, I was just trying to take a beat to figure out what my next move was going to be. And so obviously, a natural next step is to become a children's pastor. That makes so much sense. I often joke that I'm not great with kids, which is not at all what you want to hear from your children's pastor. (laughs) I wonder if Simon felt the same way. Like, you are going to ask me, a fisherman, to be your disciple. Like, that is not where my skills lie. Do we understand? Like, we're going to need some heavy training My disbelief and discomfort with being called into ministry was immediate and relentless. See, I'm imperfect. I'm sarcastic and sensitive, which is like a terribly lethal combo. I'm loud. I can be inappropriate. I love attention. I'm bad at casseroles. I'm a woman. I have tattoos. And somehow I always seem to dress like a 70s school teacher and my seven-year-old son at the exact same time. And get this, my background isn't in theology, 
ministry, or anything related to kids. So now you start to see where I get that discomfort from. In all ways, I don't look like the right candidate to be a pastor. And that was what was in my mind when I was asked to step into this pastoral role four years ago. Like, me? Like, are you sure? Have we met before? That is not a good call. But I'll tell you what that still, small voice sounded like for me. This is where I followed the invitation and the calling that I'd heard. Um, I have always loved being able to meet new parents in their need. I firmly believe that a new parent never forgets who showed up for them. And I mean really showed up. I mean like sent the text without expecting a reply, brought the meals, recommended the meds, cleaned the toilets, held the crying baby without batting an eye. That's the type of showing up I mean. Like when these parents are in the trenches. And wartime is not too far off as a metaphor for having a newborn. Uh, I've always felt like this, that season of parenting is a lot like how you hear veterans talk about being in active duty. Now, I, I would not know, and obviously it's not the same, hear me say that, but you do hear things like brutal, intense, raw, sometimes terrible. But you also hear things like there's certain nostalgia, there's reverence, longing, a sense of purpose that accompanies both of those things as well. Well, I personally knew firsthand how shell-shocked I'd been and how desperately I needed people like that in my life when I was a first-time mom. So this was the vision that I had in my mind when I said, I can be willing. I can be willing to do that. I can pray that the rest of what's required of me will be given in the moment and not a moment sooner or a moment later. In fact, in my hardest times, like right when I started this role, I felt the most lost and uncertain. In a moment of desperation, I grabbed this post-it note and I wrote, you just have to be willing. And I put it up behind my desk. And that note stayed there for years as a reminder that I'm not called because of my perfection or how good I am at Bible verses or how well I know that like I am a CH song. You guys know. I just need to be willing and show up. There was no faking it until I made it. I could bring my full self and my imperfections and my uncertainties to the role at hand because I was assured that this is what God was asking of me. We're called to the things that God wants for us, not in spite of our humanity, but because of our humanity. You don't have to be perfect to be called. You don't have to have a certain background or experience. You don't have to be the expert. You don't have to have a certain amount of money or those particular sneakers or that haircut or the house with the crown molding. You don't have to be quiet. You don't have to be crafty or thin or male or you don't even have to have a family. You don't have to be anything other than who God created you to be. You do have to be yourself, and you have to be willing. As Ardeth Cap says, we did not come to this earth to gain self-worth. We brought it with us. So not only is Simon working with some real shame and second-guessing his role in all of this, 
But you compound that with the fact that Jesus sounds so confident and bold in all that happens in this interaction. He has real authority here. The contrast between Simon and Jesus is very apparent and clear. Daryl Box says this in his commentary of Luke. Simon, Peter, and Jesus represent different sides of the theology that undergirds the community Jesus is forging. Simon, for his part, knows that he is a sinner who is not worthy to experience the benefits of God's power and presence. There is no presumption that God owes him anything. Jesus, exemplifying God's grace, makes it clear that such a humble approach to God is exactly what God will use. So even after Simon Peter expresses his shame, Jesus is so matter-of-fact in saying, do not be afraid. Follow me. We're going to do this ministry together. I'll show you how to do it. We're going to go fishing for men. I wonder if Jesus speaks with such authority and certainty and confidence here, not just as a contrast with the like human condition, the imposter syndrome that Simon Peter is experiencing, and also not so that we will yield to him and see his God-given power, but perhaps to be an example of what it's like to confidently step into our authority and our power. Follow me. Do it like this. We'll go together. I'll show you how. When I was very, and I do mean very, pregnant with my last child, my third son, it was peak COVID. I mean, we were like making the sourdough and doing the Zoom happy hours. You guys remember. I had signed up um, at the time for this online seminar conference type thing, which was about the sacred feminine. And there were some thinkers and creators and authors that I really admired taking part. And I was excited because I was really craving some connection. I'm sure most of you remember how lonely that time was. I was ready to glean some wisdom. And I also did not want to put my two older kids to bed. So uh, it accomplished three things at once. It was great. But I was also coming into this time in a place of fear. Fear around COVID and what it might be like to give birth in the midst of a pandemic. And also, to be honest, um, I was starting to get scared about the pain and discomfort of labor and delivery because I'd been there and I knew what was coming for me. But I distinctly remember um, that Hillary McBride, who is a therapist and speaker and author, was sharing something that was on her heart, and I kind of adopted it as a mantra um, for the coming time, and it was this, I can go and I can go afraid. I can go and I can go afraid. That became the drumbeat of my heart in those following weeks. And to be honest, any time that I don't feel adequate or equipped or I'm just totally in over my head, I can go and I can go afraid. I don't have to feel any sort of way. I can be who I am and also simultaneously move into what God has for me. So what is your invitation? What are you being called to do? What do you need to say, I don't get it? Uh, It's a bit over my head, but okay. I'll restart the computer. I'll throw the nets back in. I'll take the new role. I'll trust that you see something that I don't. 
I'll put up the sticky note saying, you just have to be willing. In fact, I'll lead with my willingness and not my perfection or my discomfort because neither of those things serves me and allows me to step into what God is calling me into. I'll follow you. Because when Jesus says, follow me, that's for everyone. That's for you. There are as many different callings as there are children of God. What would it look like to believe that we have a purpose and that it matters and that it might feel uncomfortable, especially at first? What do you need to set down and what do you need to pursue? What do you need to follow? Is there something you feel called to do but unworthy to pursue? I am fully aware that ministry as a profession is not for everyone, or maybe it is, I don't know. But my guess is you already have likely felt a pull towards something in your life that calls you closer to creating and bringing heaven here on earth. We see Jesus gathering his disciples here, saying, come work with me. And so we can hear and imagine the same call being sent out for us. We don't have to be perfect to be called into something great. We can expect impossibly big and good things from God, not because we're worthy, but because the divine is good and we are human. And our humility and our humanity becomes our resume for the task at hand. We're called to something because God is good, not because we are. Every part of who we are becomes the exact thing that makes us the right candidate to follow Jesus and be a healing presence in our world. May it be so. Let's pray together. Dear God of all things, thank you for being a God who does impossibly big and good things. Thank you for the way Simon Peter was called and how we can see ourselves in it. We ask that you instill in us the confidence that you call us all and that we can come as we are. As we leave here and move into our busy weeks and lives, we ask that you would allow us to show up in our full authority and our full humanity and humility. May we know that you don't have to be perfect to be called. May that be written on our hearts. Amen. Amen.